is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, I want you to understand this. It's rather a long subject, but I'm just, you've got all the verses in your notes so you can study it. But it's what I, I've come to call the, the theme of the kinsman redeemer. And here's the principle. It's taught for us in Leviticus 25. And basically, if a person themselves with property that they received from God, because everything comes from God. So they had, a, they had a, an inheritance of property and they had a life. And if they got into debt, and as a result became sold into slavery because of that debt, and their property was taken from them because of that debt, so they lost their freedom and they also lost their inheritance through debt. At the time that that person went into slavery, and at the time that person lost their inheritance, it was required by law to write the terms of the redemption. So it was always possible to buy someone back from slavery. It was al always possible to restore the property which they lost through, through the bad management of their resources. And at the time they went into slavery, and at the time they lost their inheritance, a redemption deed was written, and on that redemption deed were the terms and conditions of redemption. Now, the only thing other required was that a blood relative of that family could go at any time to the new slave owner and to the new owner and say, say, I have the power to buy back my beloved relative from slavery and I have the power to buy back the inheritance which they lost. Right. And providing you could prove your blood relationship and providing you could pay the redemption price, the new owner could not refuse you. Now that's the principle, and you find it goes into the book of Jeremiah where he's told to buy land at a time when it's not very wise because it looks like the Babylonians are going to take over the whole nation. And, these, and what would happen was there were two, um, when you bought an, a land in that way or sold land in that way, then there were two copies of the redemption deed were, were, were written. One was put into a pot in the land so it would last for many, 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 many years, and the other was put into the hands of the local judge. You find this sort of thing in the book of Ruth when Boaz goes to redeem what, what Naomi and her uh, daughter-in-law Ruth have lost. He wants to buy back the property. He also wants to buy back the bride, which is a tremendous picture of Christ redeeming not only us from slavery, but he's redeeming all that we lost in terms of inheritance. Amen? You got the picture? It's a great theme of Scripture, which I could spend a whole evening on, but it's there to teach us and instruct us concerning things at the end of the age. Now, the other thing that Jesus did was this. He, at the cross, paid the full redemption price, not only to buy us back from our slavery to sin, but to buy back all that Adam had lost in terms of physical inheritance. It was he paid the price for the whole of physical creation. The whole earth was paid for by his blood, and as a result of that, there isn't one square inch of the world that belongs to the devil anymore. Jesus bought it back. Amen? So he's got a double right of ownership. He has the right as creator in his deity, but he has the right of redemption in his humanity. He's got a double claim on the whole world. There's not a square inch of the world that belongs to the devil. He's no longer the prince of this world. He's been cast down. Now he's strutting around trying to make out he owns what he doesn't own. 
but he's a liar and he's a deceiver. Amen? He doesn't own a darn thing on earth. It's all been paid for at the cross. Now come to Revelation 5 and you can see this thing being worked out. Is it making sense to you? Come to Revelation 5. So we're not waiting for the prince of this world to be cast down. He already has been cast down. And if he, if he struts around the place looking as if he owns something, he's a liar and he's a deceiver. He's trying to con you into not grabbing back your inheritance. Come to Revelation chapter 5. And, and this is the picture. I saw in him, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now this is the title deed to the whole earth. This is the title deed of possession of all physical creation. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Because, you see, if you are from heaven, if you're an angel, you don't have the blood relationship. Right. And if you're from earth and are human, you can't pay the redemption price. So there's no one in heaven or on earth that could fulfill all the conditions of redemption until the man, Christ Jesus, came. Amen. And he, by, he had the relationship but he's also able to pay the price. So I wept much, verse 4, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, emphasizing here his human hereditary, because it was as, as Jesus the Jew, by his death upon the cross, he paid the price. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. That's what paid the redemption price. Having seven horns, which is all power, and seven eyes, which is all knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and literally and have made us to be a kingdom not kings made us to be a kingdom and a priesthood to our God and we shall reign on the earth where shall we reign? on the earth, on the earth. amen so that was settled at Calvary amen. once Jesus went to the cross not only did he pay for all our sins not only did he um, uh, by that act give the very seed of himself into our spirits so that we could become the glorious new man but he also settled the issue of who owns the world that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 21 the world is yours that's why Abraham understood by revelation Romans 4 verse 13 that he and his descendants would inherit the whole earth because Abraham was participating in the redemption price that Jesus paid at Calvary. Amen? Amen. So Jesus and his seed, which we are, or 
We are now the rightful legal owners of the whole earth and there's not a demon and certainly not a Satan himself can, can resist us because they've got no legal power anymore. So we need to start saying to these demons which sit around in our cities as if they own the place, listen you guys, you're out of here. Get out. That's exactly right. Get out. Now, while Jesus was on earth, he had not yet obtained that power. That's why he was limited in what he could do. But now, in the risen Christ, there is no such limitation. All power and all authority in heaven and on earth and concerning the earth and concerning things under the earth and concerning the present and concerning the future, they're all now gloriously him and his, and, to, and the seed to which he has made co-heirs of all these things. Amen? Amen? Amen. Is that fantastic? Yes, sir. Yes, so he says, right, now I want you to go and possess my possession. I want you to bring me into my inheritance, which means you go and kick every devil out of every situation where they're trying to pretend that they have ownership. And if there's any argument, just point them to the cross. They overcame him by, and, and the word of their testimony. So you've got to be sure, you see, you've got to be able to go to court, like it says in Luke 18, and know that you've got a cast iron case. He may filibuster for a while, but he hasn't got a case. And if you stick in there, then the father will joyfully give the verdict, and he'll give you a ten legions of angels to come with you with an order to kick the demons out of your town. Amen. Now, when you obtain that heavenly verdict, then you go as a military expedition to enforce the judgment that has been written. Now, many, many people go to war too soon. Is that, is that clear? See, there's a legal battle you've got to win, which is described for us in Luke 18. Remember that? You know what I'm talking about? Where the widow went to the judge and said, avenge me of my adversary. And he wouldn't listen at first, but after a while, he said, this woman's nagging me to death. I'll give her whatever she wants. He said, now, if that's what an unrighteous judge will, will say, how much more will your heavenly father avenge those who cry unto him day and night? And there comes a point which only God knows when the legal process is complete and the devil cannot hold the thing up anymore. He says, I've listened to all your arguments. These precious saints have stood in their ground, claimed their inheritance, and there's not a thing you can do to stop them now. You're just going to have to go. And I'm going to release a heavenly court order of ownership and possession, and I'm going to send ten legions of angels to enforce that court order. And when you go to the war with the devil, with ten legions of angels with you, it's a different battle altogether. They don't argue then. <coughs> Amen? Amen? It's time we started taking our cities. Amen. Amen? He not only paid for our sins, he, he brought back the whole earth and he became its legal owner and he can now legally from the throne of heaven order Satan and his demons to leave this world. Amen? Hallelujah. All right, isn't that wonderful? Yes. All right, now I want to move on to our notes, and I want to come to um, page nine. And I want to come in at Q, okay? Page nine, Q. The new power of the kingdom was immediately demonstrated in Jerusalem 
once the disciples received the power of the Holy Spirit, that in that first upper room meeting, they threw down the principalities over the city and the harvest began to be reaped. Amen? Peter preached once on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were baptized and added to the church. They didn't just raise their hand, they became part of the church. Amen. <laughs> That's the only kind of church growth that the Bible measures. How many joined the church, not how many made a decision. They were baptized and they were added to the church. Now that's how we count the numbers biblically. Amen? 3,000. And then after the, the raising of the lame man, another 5,000. In two years after Pentecost, one-third of Jerusalem, about 20,000 people, was converted. The gospel spread to many Jewish communities but did not reach the Gentiles. And for a while, many of the traditions and customs of the Jews were mixed in with the new revelation of Jesus and his kingdom. God gave them time, for they were having to learn many new things, but he didn't wait forever. And that's where we are. I tell you, we're in this stage now where God's beginning to do a new thing, and he's being tolerant, of, particularly of mainline traditional church denominations, where they've got the old mixed up with the new. He's being very patient, but there's coming a point where he says, right, you've had enough time now, guys. Right. You've got to distinguish between what the Word of God and your tradition. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he's particularly dealing with, for example, is the role of women. You see, if you, uh, I, I'm not sure I ought to get into this, but I'm going to. Because <laughs> it needs to be dealt with properly. Now, we go to 1 Corinthians 14, where it says there, um, uh, let the women keep silent in the church, and if they have any questions, let them ask their husband at home. And that's been used as, as, a, as a weapon to keep women silent. And yet in 1 Corinthians 11, it says they may pray and prophesy. So it doesn't even make any sense. Right. Secondly, if you go through, the, as also the law says, it says, if you go through all the five books of the Torah, never once does it forbid women to say anything. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the law. But it is in the oral tradition where the scribes and the Pharisees took the scriptures and interpreted and interpreted, and the more they interpreted, the further and further it got away from the truth. All right. uh, and there are two forms of the, that's called the Talmud. Are you familiar with this stuff? The Torah is the scriptures. The Talmud is the oral tradition which two schools of, of, of thought produced. One was a Babylonian uh, Talmud, and the other was a Constantinople one. And they differ. And what they say is that the accumulative wisdom of many generations of scribes and Pharisees has brought a better understanding of the truth. It actually says this in the Talmud, because I've, I've got these books and I've carefully read them, because I wanted to understand what was going on in the scriptures that we have today. And in the Talmud, not in the Torah, it says... Let the women keep silent in the church. If they've got any question, let them ask the husband. It also says that, that every male should pray this prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you did not make me a dog, a donkey, or a woman. <laughs> and that's the prejudice against women, which was in the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, it also says in the Talmud this, that where the, where the, revel where the wisdom of the Talmud appears to contradict the Scripture... The, the accumulated wisdom of many generations of Pharisees and scribes has more authority than the scriptures themselves. In other words, the Talmud has the same error in it as the Roman Catholic Church. Because the Roman Catholic Church says exactly the same thing. They say that the, the interpretation of scripture by the priests 
and by the encyclia of the Pope have more authority than what the scriptures seem to say. So don't read the Bible, listen to what we tell you. Now, another interesting thing is this, that the Greek language was a spoken language. It was not particularly a written language because no one wrote. If you went to university in the days of the Bible, you would sit and hear oral teaching without any notebook and you were expected to memorize everything you heard. So it was a total mental exercise. There was no written notes, no spoken notes, no written notes handed out to anybody. It was a total oral thing. Now, they had a tremendous capacity to remember and a tremendous capacity to, to you know, put in their mind what they had learned. But as a result, the punctuation of Greek, was there wasn't any. It was just a block of text with no commas, no full stops, no paragraphs, nothing like that at all, not even question marks. So the only way you knew whether it was a statement or a question was the tone in which it was said. For example, I could say to you, brother, going home tomorrow, which is a question. I could say, going home tomorrow, which is a statement. It's exactly the same construction, but it's got a totally different meaning just by the tone in which you said it. Now, most of the Greek language was conveyed orally and it had those tones to it. So when you read the New Testament text, it's just a block of text with no, no verses, no punctuation, no paragraphs, no chapters. That's all been put in by the interpreters. It's not in the original Greek manuscript. And it's a matter of opinion whether it's a statement or a question. Now, the, this particular letter to the Corinthians is well known as being Paul answering a series of questions. Let me reread it to you the way that it could possibly have been written. Come to 1 Corinthians 14. Just to give you a little mind, a little bit of exercise. Come to those verses. So we come to verse 34. And I'm going to turn it from a statement into a question. Should the women keep silent in the churches and are they not permitted to speak and are they supposed to be submissive as the oral law of the Talmud says? And if they want to learn anything, should they not ask our own husband at home, is it not shameful for women to speak into the, ch in, into the church? What? Did the word of God come from you, or was it only, only you that it reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet, let him understand that, that the things which I write to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone's ignorant, let him, we have no such tradition. In other words, it could be turned right round to be a question. And Paul says, no, you don't do that, because it's not in the Bible. It's only in the oral tradition of the Talmud. Now, why has that scripture come to us like that? Well, that's a difficult question which I can't fully answer. But we're trying to struggle with this. But here's a good guideline to me, is be careful of proof texts. In the scriptures, 18 times, Jesus is called either Jesus of Nazareth or the Nazarene. 18 times. So everybody thought that he was born in Nazareth, because he was called Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of Nazarene. No one, it appears, knew that he actually was born in Bethlehem, because he grew up in Nazareth. Came back to Nazareth as a little boy, and everybody forgot or didn't know that he actually was born in Bethlehem. 
He was called Jesus of Nazareth. He was called Jesus the Nazarene. And here are these word text experts who have decided from Scripture that the Messiah must come from Bethlehem. He doesn't come from Nazareth. Amen? So they see Jesus doing all these marvellous miracles. They see the fantastic power of God through. And they say, I don't care what he does. I don't care how the Spirit of God seems to be with him. The prophet doesn't come from Nazareth. And it's interesting how Jesus never bothered to correct them. Because if they didn't like him for that proof text, they'd find another one not to like him with. Amen? He left them in their ignorance, and they went to hell with their proof text. Quite sure that they were standing foil, defending the scriptures when they were doing nothing of the kind. Nicodemus was the only guy that used his common sense and said, no man, he didn't like Jesus' theology any more than they did. It, it wrecked everything that he, that he grew up with. But he said, no man can do these things unless God is with him. So if you can find one woman that God's using, powerfully using, and when she preaches and speaks the word of the anointing of God comes through her, then you've got to say, there's something wrong with my doctrine. I better go and find out what the truth is. Because I said to Jesus, I said, Lord Jesus, you know, this is a big problem, because I, I was actually at a large conference, and I was sharing this conference with Sidney Jacobs, and, uh, and, and she and I were the two speakers at this conference. And she having to leave a day early, so the leader asked me if I would kindly pray for her before she went with her husband, Mike. So here am I. I, I, put, I, I lay my hands on Sidney Jacobs, and I hear myself wanting to prophesy. I thought, I'm not going to prophesy to Sidney Jacobs. But what was even worse was what I was going to prophesy. This was some years ago, by the way. And I felt the Spirit of God stirring in me to prophesy that she was apostolically called to her ministry and she was not to be ashamed of the title of apostle. Although she was not to be a father of churches, she was to be an apostolic general which was to lead the army of the Lord into new spiritual victories. And I didn't even agree with that at the time. But this prophetic word came out of me and I thought, oh my. And I, I knew it was the Spirit of God. And I had prophesied by my spirit more accurately than my own doctrine. Because I believed that women could have a ministry, but I didn't believe that women could be apostles because apostolic ministry is a fatherhood. I didn't see that apostolic ministry is wider than being a father. So I prophesied this in a very large conference, and that tape went everywhere. And I thought, I thought these wolves are going to eat me. I said, Lord, you better give me a scripture to defend myself because they're coming after me, and I haven't got any ground to stand on. And I said, Lord, it would have made it a lot easier if you'd appointed one of the twelve apostles a woman. Then we'd all know it was okay. <laughs> I said, Lord, why didn't you do that? And this is what he said to me. He said, he said they weren't ready yet for such a revelation. If I'd appointed
you read of Junia, a woman who was of note among the apostles. So now the church has moved enough to be able to receive a greater revelation and they were being freed from the traditional bondages of their, of their not so much the, the scripture, but of their Jewish traditions which were wrongly deduced from the scriptures. Jesus said, you set aside the word of God for your traditions. Are you hearing me? Now, I'm saying this because I want you to be ready for things that you didn't know were God and actually are the word of God, but you didn't think they were. Because God's going to start to do new things and move in new ways, and we've got to be prepared for them. And I've, I've learned more in the last two years, new things that I didn't know of the way God moved than I have in the previous 40 years, because God's on the move to change things. This is just an example of the thing. But, but uh, I can't fully explain it when you go to 1 Timothy. Let me just say this. In the whole of the Bible, it never ever once says that women as a gender are under the authority of men as a gender. What it does say is that a man married to a woman, and in the Greek language, the word for husband and the word for man is the same word. Ania. The same word for a mature, grown-up woman is the same as the word for a wife. There isn't a separate word. So you don't know whether it's talking about a mature woman assumed to be married or a wife in particular. But what it does say in several places, it uses this phrase, idios ania, which means literally her own particular man. Now that's clearly a husband. Amen. So, so, so it talks about the relationship in marriage, that so when a woman marries a man in marriage, then she submits to his headship, not because of the gender, but because of the relationship in marriage. Just as when you come and join a church, you submit to the pastor of the church because you're a committed covenant member of that church. Now, he hasn't got the rule over all Christians, but if you join his church and come under his fatherhood, he has a right to exercise authority over you because you've accepted him as your spiritual father by joining and becoming a member of that church. Do you understand? So when a woman marries a man, he says there's going to be order in the family. That You're both going to become rulers, but he has the headship of your rule. Amen. That's the only thing the Bible says. So I have no authority over women because I'm a man, but I have authority over my wife because we have been joyfully married for 51 years. And she's a joint ruler with me, but I have the headship of our joint government. Does that, does that make sense to you? And if a woman is married to a man, in, in other words, if it's a husband and wife partnership, and she's got a greater teaching gift than her husband, she shouldn't use it to make him look ridiculous. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's saying. I don't allow a woman to teach a man and to usurp authority over No, I don't allow a wife to use her superior teaching gift to make her husband look stupid because she's dishonouring her head. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me. And there are couples like Priscilla. You get the feeling she was a better teacher than Apollos. Uh, than, 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 sorry, not Apollos, than uh, Aquila. She was a better teacher than Aquila. That's the feeling you get from quite a few scriptures. But she was to use it in a submissive way that didn't undermine her husband. Now, the same is true of Cindy Jacobs and her husband Mike. She's a powerful prophetic woman, but he's still the head of their partnership, very clearly. And I could give you other examples. Amen? So we're going to have to learn lots of new things. And so for, 20, for maybe 20 years, 
the church, which was primarily Jewish, entirely Jewish, it had a lot of Jewish traditions which God left undisturbed because they had so much to learn about the kingdom. But eventually, he couldn't allow that to continue any longer, and so he blew the whole thing up. <laughs> and he blew it up by the gospel going over the wall into the Gentile world where they had no Jewish background, they didn't know anything about Jewish traditions, they just got a powerful, glorious new life in Jesus, and they didn't know they had to wear suits on Sunday. They just were on fire for Jesus. And I tell you, we're, we're seeing a move now amongst a new generation of young people that aren't going to play church games. Amen. But they're going to be passionately on fire for Jesus with an incredible anointing of power, but they're not going to be fitting into our old church molds, and we better get used to this because th th we're going to have to let these things go. It's a whole new thing that God is doing. Amen? Amen? That's right. The new wine is coming and the old wineskin cannot hold it. If you try to do that, both get destroyed. But this new wine's got the power to change our citizens, to change our nation, which the old wine never did have the power to do. Amen? So finally, they came to the Council of Jerusalem, which was in Acts chapter 15. And they came to, to consider this matter. The date is somewhere round about AD 45. It's not quite 20 years after the church was born. And Paul, who has begun to move, he's already been to Antioch and seen the power of God there. Barnabas has been to the Samaritans and to and seen the power of God there, they're beginning to see that God seemed to be working in non-Jewish communities with incredible power. And also, P Peter was dragged to the house of Cornelius. And, and the Spirit of God fell upon those Gentile believers just as he did at the beginning. And Peter said, what could I do? I could to resist them being baptized. But he was in hot water for doing it. But the, the Pharisees said, they've got to be circumcised and they've got to keep the law of Moses, otherwise they cannot come into the church. They've got to do the same thing that we've been doing for the last 50, well, 20 years. And they had this um, debate where everybody, and you thought, this church is never going to stay together, it's going to split into a thousand pieces. But even though they had very strongly held positions, there was a submission to God, which I, th I want us to, to recognize here. Because we're going to have a few little debates like this. Finally, they, they go aside to hear the matter. And notice that James has a headship authority here. He doesn't say, well, we went away and voted and it was seven to five. He said, he said listen, guys, I've listened to all that you different people said. You all had the chance to speak. I went away and, and we had a private consultation with the elders and with the apostles. The prophet spoke into the situation. He said, I sought the face of God and God spoke to me and gave me a scripture which is you know, Amos chapter 9, that God says that he will raise again the tabernacle of David, he will repair its ruins, he will repair its walls, and the purpose of doing this is that the rest of mankind might seek the Lord and all the people that are called by his name. And then he says, this is my judgment. 
that we don't require these Gentiles to do anything to keep the law of Moses or to try and live like Jews. They've got to keep certain observances, which I've not time to go into tonight, which are very significant. They've got to obviously avoid from any kind of fornication. They've got to abstain from, from blood and from things offered to idols and all the bondage that that would bring. I don't think I've got time to go into this, but there was very, very valid reasons why that was required of these new Gentile converts coming out of idol. If you've lived in Hinduism, you understand these scriptures better because that's the sort of thing that go on in the Hindu temples. They had to cut themselves from that, off from that idolatry. They couldn't continue to do those things and also belong to Christ. And, and it says, this is the amazing thing, it says the word was good to everybody and they all received it. Amen? Amen? Now I want to spend the rest of my time on this thing. Because once they got that freedom, then they began to move into the fourth dimension of the kingdom, which is the gospel of the kingdom as it now spreads to all nations because David's tabernacle is being raised up. And I want us to quickly look at that as I close for tonight. I want time to pray and minister. I want to pray over cloths and handkerchiefs for you to take back because people are going to get healed all over the place because of this. So let's quickly go back. and I'll, I'll, I'll trace it for you. To get to understand this, you've got to go back to the beginning of the book of Samuel when they were fighting with the Philistines. And it was in the days of, of um, Eli, the high priest, and his two sons were living godless lives. And they were losing their battles with the Philistines. They thought, well, if we take the Ark of the Covenant with us, which is the symbol of the glory and presence of God, then we're not going to lose. We're going to win the battle. It was a great idea. It was a tremendous shout, a charismatic shout that shook the roof. But the trouble was it was an unholy shout. It's all right to have noisy prayer meetings, but if the people making the noise are not right with God, they actually generate devilish opposition to them. Because the Philistines were stirred up by the noise and said, we must fight even harder. So that unholy charismatic shouting increased the opposition to them and made more certain their defeat. Hello. So we better be careful how we start to go about spiritual warfare. If we just get noisy prayer meetings where ungodly, unholy people are making a lot of noise, they're actually asking to get killed by the devil. And we need to be careful. Because the first thing that's got to come is holiness. Amen. Separation unto God. Right. If you are born again and if you're raised to, to be with him, then you've got to live like Jesus, which means you're holy. Amen? Amen. Holiness is not a look on your face. <laughs> Here's St. Vincent. <laughs> it's not a holy picture. It's a decision. And here's the decision. Because the word holy means this, I'm sure you know this, to be set apart exclusively for a particular use. And you make a decision that I'm going to be, a, and if you make the decision, then God will supply the power to ratify that decision. It's like a Mack truck. If you get into a big Mack truck and turn the motor on, then there's a mechanism kicks in called power-assisted steering. And a little 
girl could get in and get hold of that steering wheel and turn the wheels, not because she's bionic woman, but simply because the power of that mechanism enables her to turn these wheels, not by her power, but by the power that's imparted through the mechanism. Now, the moment you want to live God's holy way, God will release all his power of grace to make it a possibility. But you've got to indicate the way you want to go. You've got to choose the direction, and God will give you the power to go in a holy direction if you want to. So you've never seen a driver get into a, a Mack truck, but if you turn that motor off and try and move those wheels, you can't move, even a great muscular man can't move them, because without that power you can't do a darn thing. But I've never seen a driver, a Mack truck, get into a Mack truck, sit there and say, I believe in Jesus' name to turn right. No, you idiot, get hold of the steering wheel and point it the way you want to go. Amen. You've got to decide you want to be holy. You make a decision. You say, I'm going to be set apart exclusively for the use of God, which means I'm not going to be used for any other purpose. When I lived in Bombay all those years, the water supply in Bombay has typhoid in the water supply, basilic dysentery, so you would be an idiot to drink that water. So one of my jobs every night was to take the day's supply of water for the next day, put it into a big aluminum kettle, and boil it for 30 minutes to kill everything in that water. Then I would drain it through a, a, a cloth, a, a filter, into a big plastic tub, a big plastic bucket, which I then put the lid on it, it cooled overnight, and in the morning I poured it out for the drinking water for the day. Now that plastic bucket was kept holy. It was set apart exclusively for the use of drinking water. Now there came a day when I was working on my vehicle and I needed to drain the oil. And I went up into the kitchen. When you've been married a long time, wives can read your mind before you say anything. You know what I mean? So I came up into the kitchen and I was looking around for a, a suitable container to drain the oil. And I looked at this plastic bucket and I thought, oh, that plastic bucket is just what I need. And I could, I could use it once, clean it up, so you'd never know I'd ever used it for dirty oil. And I was just contemplating this. My wife said, what are you looking at that bucket for? I said, well, I, was, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> and I said, well, I was, I, I, I was thinking to use it for, to drain the oil, but I said, I'd clean it up so perfectly you'd never know it had been used. She stood there protecting her. She said, you can't use this bucket for that dirty oil, not even once. She said, this bucket is kept exclusively for drinking water. She could have said the bucket's holy because that's an exact picture of the thing. So we make a decision that we're not going to be used even once for a dirty thing. Well, I could do it once and clean myself up afterwards, go to the blood and forget. I know you don't, blub it. That's not what the blood's about. It's an excuse to sin occasionally and get a quick fix by asking Jesus to forgive you. But if you decide to be holy, Lord, I will, because the Bible says, be holy for he is holy. If you decide to be holy, then he will release all the power of his grace to make holiness a practical reality in your life. And you indicate, Lord, I want to be holy. He says, right, now I'm going to close round you with all my power to make it happen. It says this in Philippians chapter 2. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you've got to work it out, but he's the power that makes it practically possible. So if we're going to start to go to war with demonic principalities and powers, we better make sure that we haven't got great holes in our breastplate of righteousness, otherwise the devil will get us. 
However noisy we are, it won't make any difference. It'll just make them madder and more vicious in the way they attack us. So what happened way back there was that the, the ark was captured. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. When Eli got the news, he fell over backwards and broke his neck. And then Phinehas's wife gave premature birth to a baby. She died in labor, called the baby Ichabod. It's like, a, like an Italian opera, you know. Thing. And anyway, every, it was a disaster. They kept the ark in the temple of Dagon for several days. It got too hot to handle. Every morning, the, the Dagon was on his face. The final morning, he was broken into pieces. He said, let's get rid of this ark of God. It's too hot. They put it on an ox cart and let it go back to the children of God. And he went on an ox cart with the oxen lowing, you see. Now, that's what they saw. Now, that's what the Philistines did because they knew no better. But God isn't going to let you do it the Philistinian way because you don't know how to handle a holy God. Hello. So the ark comes back to the men of Bethlehem. We're now in 2 Samuel chapter 6, by the way. I, um, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 6. And it comes back to the men of Bethshemesh who are, who are reaping a harvest in the harvest field. And they see the ark of God coming. Oh, great. God's coming to help us in our evangelistic activity because many evangelistic ministers have got the feeling that God ain't really with them. And they wish he was. But you see, God cannot join you in your evangelistic activity. You've got to join him in his. Many evangelistic ministries in America are wasting vast sums of money, vast amounts of effort and energy, and reaping almost nothing. Because they're not really wanting to be workers together with God. They want God to be workers together with them. They'll have God on their terms, but they won't come and work with him on his terms. So the ark arrives and they think, oh, look, I've always wondered what was in the ark. <laughs> Let's have a look. So they lift the lid of the ark, the holiest object, which if you read numbers and all these things and think, could you have the nerve to do such a crazy thing? And they lifted the ark to have a, just have a curious look inside and 50,072 people died on the spot. Now, that's the picture I have of many of our theological seminaries. Here's our, you know, here's our education. Look, Bardley, let's imagine it's an English one. Here's the Reverend Dr. Bardley Smythe. Let's have a look at God. You know, put, they think they can put God under the microscope of their intellect and see whether, is God alive or is he dead? I don't really know all, but it's an interesting study. Instead of falling in reverence before God, they're picking around at God as if he's a specimen on a microscope slide. In their intellectual arrogance. And as a result, they're dead. Amen? They may still talk religious noises, but spiritually they're dead. They get a DD, which I say is a doubly dead degree. <laughs> Hear what I'm saying? Now here's the next thing which absolutely staggers me. Then they make this decision. They say, who can stand before this holy God? Good question. They're realizing that they are incompatible with God. And they also discover that God doesn't change. So if they're going to be compatible with God, they've got to change. But the tragedy is they weren't prepared to change. So they then say, it's the end of, of, second, of 1 Samuel 6, they say, where shall he go from us? So rather than have an uncomfortable presence of a holy God that they can't work with, they'd rather get rid of God and continue with their old evangelistic methods because 
Their finances are a bit questionable. The way they manipulate money. There's all sorts of things wrong with their ministry, but they're not prepared to get it right. Can you hear me? That's where many ministries are in this nation. And I'm not teaching theory. I tell you, I've been inside some of them, and I know what I'm talking about. So they get rid of God. Rather than have the embarrassment of a holy God finding fault with them and calling them to repentance. So the ark is sent away to a man. And the man's name is Abinadab. And the name Abinadab means the one that was willing. Isn't that interesting? Now that's where we've been most of the 20th century, beloved. The presence, the fiery presence of God and, 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 and the holiness of God roaring through our meetings is something we've not experienced since the beginning of the 20th century. Hardly at all. But there have been, there have been the odd individuals who were willing to pay the price for intimacy. And so God's been comfortably willing to dwell with them, but it's not, if you like, the picture of the church at large. It's just a few individual ministries. A good example would be A.W. Tozer, for example. Dr. A.B. Simpson will be another good example. This is a few here and there that paid the price and God was with them and blessed them and used them. But the church at large, it just carried on with its methodology without God's fiery presence. Now, it went on like that for 20 years. And then Saul came to the throne. Saul reigned for 40 years. So there's, there's, there's well over 60 years, almost 70 years, where the people of God never had God's presence because the Ark of the Covenant was never in the Tabernacle of Moses for those 70-something years. But they could go to the services on Saturday and go through the religious ceremony, and it was much better if God wasn't there because they got it over with more quickly. <laughs> See, you don't need God for religion. In fact, God's about an embarrassment when you live in religion because you can't finish on time and get to the restaurant before the Baptist. <laughs> Amen? 70 years. But there was a young shepherd boy on a hill who used to play his harp and look at the stars and think, God, you are amazing. Just watching the birds fly and watching the stars and watching the sheep, watching God's creation. He just, he's, he's a being was filled with worship. He began to worship God and God started to come to him and meet with him on that hillside. And he had a real presence of God come down. The intimacy of God and he was prepared to pay the price for that relationship. And God was preparing his man to do something totally different in the nation. Now I tell you, around the nation right now there are young people, although there are some older folk who are around, who are young at heart and young in spirit. And they know God intimately because of the price that they paid for that relationship. But there are a few exceptions here and there. But the, the whole gamut of, of church life in America is largely devoid of God's powerful presence. And if he came, it would mess things up. Because they couldn't run to their carefully structured program anymore. Many, many churches measure success by two factors. What I call the boss number which is the bottoms on seats. As long as there's more people sitting on their seats on a Sunday morning, and as long as the offering gets bigger, they are successful. And they're the only two criteria by which they measure success. And we've got this whole tendency now to make more and more attractive, easy to come to without demand kind of services. Just come in quick, we can do the whole thing in one hour, we can and pay your tithe and go, and God bless you and see you again next week. 
But there are those who have got a different heart and a different spirit. Amen. There were the Davids who met God and know his presence, love his presence. But most of them are not in any positions of leadership or authority right now. But there's a day coming close upon us now when things are going to change. And the house of Saul is coming to an end and the house of David is going to replace it. So, coming quickly to this, so we don't take more time. Eventually, as you know, David was chosen by the Lord to replace Saul. Even his own father didn't see his potential and didn't even bother to bring him to Saul. He was just a little shepherd boy with a few sheep on the wilderness. But God knew his heart and he knew that man. So he called David to Samuel. Samuel anointed him. That was the first time. And then he went through this period where the power of God began to be upon him. That just made Saul jealous and wanted to kill him. He went through these 17 years of being treated like an outlaw only because he had a pure heart for God. Yes. Eventually, Saul, and David behaved himself perfectly. He never tried to kill Saul. He never did anything to, to dis He honoured him as the anointed of God even when he was being treated so abominably. Amen. What a beautiful heart, what a beautiful spirit. Jonathan three times made a commitment to David, but when it came to the family, the family had more Paul than his covenant commitment to David did. God's destiny for Jonathan was that he should be second in the kingdom under David. David knew that, Jonathan knew that, even Saul knew that David was anointed to replace him. But he fought it tooth and nail to the day he died. But the tragedy is that Jonathan, when he had to make the decision between a rebellious father and a covenant brother, he made the choice to stick with his family and he died with his family rather than being number two in the kingdom. Can you hear what I'm saying? And something Jesus said, he said, I haven't come to bring peace. There's going to be two divided against three in the same family over this issue of whether you're going to be of the kingdom and you're going to be of the new move of God or whether you're going to stick to your old traditions and refuse to let me have my way in my church. I think Jonathan's one of the most tragic cases. He's such a beautiful spirit, such a lovely man. Three times he said, David, I'm making covenant with you. And, and, and I'm gonna, you're going to be number one. I, I see God, but I want, I'm going to be number two under you. I'm not fighting for the lead position. I'm just ready to serve you and be with you there. But when it came to the crisis, he died with his dad because he would not obey the conditions of that covenant. Jesus said, if you love father and mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. That's what he said. Amen? Amen? So sometimes your years and years of family tradition, your generations of being faithful to a certain organization can stop you coming into the power and purpose of God. Amen. Eventually Saul was killed tragically, so was Jonathan. And David now began to move into the role that God had prepared for him many, many years before. First of all, he was anointed by the two tribes, his own tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 2. But the other ten tribes still didn't recognize him. He went on for another seven years before they recognized who he was. You know, there comes a time in the city when God's appointed a clear David of the city, and the church knows who he is, that he's uh, the pastor of, but the rest of the city won't recognize him. He attends the minister's fraternals, and they're boring, and they're not led properly, but they won't recognize this man, and give him the role that God's given to him. 
But eventually the day came. David was finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he was anointed by all the ten tribes, besides his own two tribes, and now he moved from Hebron to Jerusalem, and the first thing he did was to bring back the ark of God, because he couldn't think of a kingdom where God wasn't right at the center. There's so much more I could say, but I haven't got time to say this tonight. You have to deal with the Jebusites. I have not time to deal with what that means. It's all got powerful significance. All I want to say is this, that he was able then to set up the tabernacle of David, and he set it up on Mount Sion. Now, just seven miles away on Mount Gibeah was Moses' tabernacle. The two of them coexisted for those 33 and a half years where David reigned in Jerusalem. And every Saturday you made your choice to go with David and the glory boys or to go with <laughs> David's wife, Michael, who definitely wasn't going with her crazy husband to that place. <laughs> and you went through the old traditional religious service, which God even cleaned that up to some extent to make it a lot better than it was. But the power wasn't in Moses' tabernacle, the power was in David's tabernacle. And there... And when you walked into David's tabernacle, there was just a simple tent. You pulled back the flap, and you were in the glorious presence of God. You better know that you knew the sacrifice of the Lamb. I tell you, everything about that David's tabernacle was new covenant. There were no sacrifices for sin. The priesthood was not Levitical. It was Melchizedekian. They were Melchizedek priesthood. All the traditions and all the ceremonies of Moses' tabernacle were not performed there. You just opened the flap, got into God's presence, and you, you madly worshipped him and adored him. And the power of that tabernacle was the driving force of the whole establishing of the kingdom of God. And once David established the tabernacle of David, then from that tabernacle, he began to bring forth a rule which went across the whole nation. Every city came under the rule of that kingdom. And then all the surrounding nations, they all surrendered to the rule and government of David. Their, their demonic powers were broken. He sent garrisons in to occupy their cities. And for the whole of that region, we read, he had peace for 40 years. Now, the strategy that God gave him was in the tabernacle of David. He only attacked the Philistines three times and totally destroyed them. Saul did it dozens of times, but never was successful because Saul didn't do it God's way. He did it Saul's way. I could go on and on and on and on with all this stuff. Can you hear the, see the picture? Now, I'm going to close with this. Here's the final thing. Towards the end of David's reign, he had this longing... He lived in this fantastic, glorious house that God had given him in the most supernatural way. He wanted God to have a better house than his, which seems a very laudable, worthwhile thing, but the trouble is God didn't want it that way. Come with me to 2 Samuel chapter um, 7, and you'll see what I mean. I'm going to be about another 15 minutes, and then we're going to move into some time of ministry. Okay, come to 2 Samuel. Chapter 7. Verse 1. It came to pass when the king David was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That was totally untrue. Here's an un... It is an experienced prophet messing up because he responds to what seems naturally right. He 
It's easy because what David wanted to do was a perfectly laudable thing. He wanted to build a great big house for God to live in. But God knew the dangers of that. And God didn't want it because he knew it would lead to, to a, a distraction because the center, I mean, God met with them in that simple tent. And in that simple tent, they had such encounters with God. God's presence was so powerful. He gave them strategy to win the war. All kinds of incredible things happened. And, 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 and now they were going to build a great big fancy building for God to dwell in. So listen to what happens. Verse 4, but it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For have I not dwelt in a for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I've moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. Where, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, I, have I ever spoken to a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from the following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, and I've been with you wherever you go. Come down to verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's clearly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not talking about Solomon. Hello. So God's looking down the road where his great son, of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be that seed who will build not a temple made of stone, he's going to build a temple made of living people. Jesus said, destroy this temple, talking of Herod's temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And he talked not about a physical temple, but, but a body made up of believers. We are, it says we are, we are built together to be a habitation for God in the Spirit. And that's the only building that God's interested in. Amen? He never wanted a, a, a temple built because he knew it would be a distraction. The temple that Herod built was built politically because Herod was half Jewish, half Edomite, and he wanted to get favor with the Jewish people, so he built this great, incredible edifice. It took 46 years. He was a total lying, deceiving crook who had no relationship with God whatsoever. He didn't build it because he loved God. He built it just for a political ruse to get the Jewish people to accept him as their king so that he could be their political head. It was totally a political game. That's why Jesus said, huh. He said, oh, Lord, look at these wonderful buildings. He said, huh. not one stone is going to be left upon another. This building is an offense to me because everything that goes on here is nothing to do with the glory of God. Just for one day, at the end of his ministry, he cleansed out all the money changers, and for one day, people were healed. It became a house of prayer for the nations. Extravagant praise and worship went on, and the guys that ran the temple hated every minute of it and couldn't get rid of him quick enough. Now, the mystery that I'm still sorting out is why God let them do it. God does things permissively sometimes so that we might learn our lessons. So the temple was built. Now what they did was, you can read all about this in Chronicles, they took the... Let me go back a little bit. Have I got a few more minutes? See, I want you to see this. 
Moses lived in a tent in the center of the camp of Israel. It was just a simple tent, just like David's tabernacle. It was the same simple tent with no paraphernalia, no curtains, no bells and smells and sacrifices. It was just a tent. He shut the door to be alone with God, which is what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 6.6. 6. That's to become the only tabernacle that God's looking for. When Jesus came amongst us, it tells us he tabernacled amongst us. Now Joshua came with a few other unnamed people to enjoy the presence of God. But the trouble was when God came to, to Moses in his tent, in all the tents around, things were going on that shouldn't be going off. So when God came just to be, love his wonderful servant Moses and to speak face to face with him, his presence coming automatically brought judgment to the sin that was going on in the tents all around him. Because God cannot stop being God. His people crying out for revival, crying out for God to come. They don't know what they're asking for. Because when God comes, he cannot stop being God, and his presence alone will automatically bring sin to judgment. So we better be sure we're clean before we ask him to come. So as a result, people in the tents around started dying through the judgment of God because he came to speak with his servant Moses. So the only solution was to take Moses' tent, take it right, 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 right outside the camp, miles away from the camp, so God could meet with him without destroying the rest of the nation of Israel. Those who wanted his presence paid the price and went out and spent time in the tabernacle, and there they were as blessed, like young Joshua was a great example of this. But what God did then, afterwards, was to build the tabernacle of Moses with its different compartments. And in the holy place at the back of Moses' tabernacle was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, but nobody ever went in there. Only the high priest once a year, and not without very complicated sacrifices for sins. So the whole Levitical priesthood never saw God, never knew God, and never touched God. And the people came to the tabernacle of Moses, and they gave them three benefits. They gave them the benefit of their sins being forgiven. They gave them the benefit of bringing their tithes and offerings so they could be blessed financially. They gave them the benefit of being prayed for that, they, that their sicknesses might be healed. So in the Moses Tabernacle, you came without meeting God, you just came to the priest for the benefits which God was able to give you. Because God so loves us, this is the amazing thing, he so loves us, he wants to give us his benefits, even though he cannot come near us because his presence will actually be destructive. So in, in the tent of Moses, People went there to meet him face to face. In the tabernacle of Moses, they went there to get the benefits without getting too near to God because they weren't living a good enough life to get too near to God without being destroyed. That went on for all those years. Now, if you think about that, that's where many, many people are in evangelical Christianity. They want the benefits, but they, they're scared of his presence. So many churches were ripped in half when they sought the Toronto blessing because God came. That was the problem. There was a church that I knew and know well, in fact, in, in Florida, when uh, John Arnott went there one Sunday, and, and I happened to have been in another church nearby, and I won't go into the whole story, but this particular church had got a whole load of people that when God came, they ran out of the church and never came back again. Because they wanted the benefits, they didn't want God. So the tabernacle 
where you went just for God and God will meet you face to face and you'll be his friend because you paid the price of because they wanted the benefits, they didn't want God. So the tabernacle, or let me rephrase that, the tent of Moses, his own little prayer tent, was the place where you went just for God, and God would meet you face to face, and you'll be his friend, because you paid the price of friendship. In the tabernacle of Moses, you could have the benefits without getting too near to God. He would forgive your sins, he would heal your sicknesses, he would prosper you, which is what my, I want. I want these things from God. I don't want God, I just want these three benefits. Now, do you want the presence or do you want the benefits? When they built Solomon's temple, they took, this is what they did, they took the ark, they took Moses' tabernacle and erected it inside the temple of Solomon. In other words, they made permanent that temporary shelter. They made Moses' tabernacle was put inside Moses, Moses uh, inside Solomon's temple and they went back to the old ritual. Now here's the tragic thing. This building was so glorious and so wonderful the people were so drawn by the building they stopped going to David's tabernacle and they went only to Solomon's temple. And within a short space of time the tabernacle of David fell into ruins and was just disappeared because no one wanted that kind of relationship with God anymore. That's the tragedy. Now the tabernacle of Moses was now given new life and new significance by putting it inside a fantastic building. But it was going backwards. Can you see this? And then, for and then be very for long before Solomon got into terrible sin and the people of God got into terrible sin and they lost that wonderful 40 years they had with, or 33 and a half years they had with David when, when the peace and righteousness and glory of the kingdom filled the land and touched all the other nations. That disappeared with the collapsing of David's tabernacle. And all they had was a more spectacular form of Moses', ta of Moses tabernacle with, it, with, its, with its ritual but without the life and the presence. Before long, Solomon was, was marrying all kinds of weird women and all kinds of demonic darkness was coming into the nation. The nation was ripped apart into pieces and it went into ruins for many, many years. And then Amos prophesies, there's a day coming when God is going to raise up again the tabernacle of David. He's going to repair its ruins, he's going to restore its walls. And what God's going to do, he's going to produce a company of people who want him for his presence of himself. Amen. On his power, on his glory, they'll pay any price to live in his presence. And that power, once again, will become the heart and centre of the kingdom. Now, once the power of the gospel reached the Gentiles, and they began, came flooding into the kingdom of God with tremendous passion, then God said, that's the fulfilment of this scripture. I'm not taking them back into Judaism. I'm going to bring Judaism out of its religious bondage and bring it into the liberty of the tabernacle of David. Because when David went into the tabernacle of David, he stopped being a Jew. He stopped all the Jewish ritual, stopped all the Jewish tradition. The Levitical priesthood didn't serve in the tabernacle of David. It was the Melchizedek priesthood. It was simple, no sacrifices for sin. Everybody just walked into the presence of God and face-to-face -face fellowship with God, which you could not have anywhere else. This is making sense to you. Now, around this nation right now, there are groups of people that are paying the price 
for God's presence to come. They're raising up again the tabernacle of David, and one of the dimensions of it is this 24-hour prayer, seven days a week. We're just lost in his presence, but it's not just worshipping him. If we're getting strategies for war, we're getting power and authority to take nations for God. All the things that happened in David's tabernacle of old are happening in these tabernacles, and much more beside. Children have an active part in it. Healings and miracles are taking place in a way that we've not seen in this nation for, for decades. And that's where the kingdom is finally going. Now there's masses and masses and masses of stuff that I have left out because I've run out of time. And that's giving you a taste of this thing. Give you a picture. And that's where we're going. And that's why we're being called, first of all, to prayer. And we're being called to, to be the kind of people that, that have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer ministry that, that, that is so powerful in its praise and worship, so powerful in its spiritual authority. Because from David's tabernacle, we exercise rule and government and authority. Once Jesus had risen from the dead, he waited a period, and then he said, this is not good enough. I'm not content to just give life to the old Jewish religion I'm, I'm going to pull down that, that whole thing and instead of that we're going to have the tabernacle of David raised up. The temple of, Sol of, the temple of Herod was destroyed but the real temple was being raised up powerfully in the hearts of men and women who had never been Jews, never ever been part of the Jewish religion but now they were part of this new powerful company of people that worshipped him day and night and moved out in all the power and all the authority of the kingdom. Now that's where my heart is. What about yours? Does that make, does that make sense to you? If you track through all this stuff? And I'm longing for this day. And one by one in the cities of America, we're going to see this thing happening. It's already beginning to happen. You see, I haven't time to do what I was going to do about the year 2004. We'll have to just leave that. Sorry? You want to hear it. You want to hear it quickly? Right, I'll do it in 15 minutes then, all right? Let me just tell it to you verbally without going to all the notes. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is reviewing the last 40 years. Amen? They're about to go into the promised land, and he's not going to be allowed to go. He's going to die before they go into the promised land. And I want you to look at this. He, 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 first of all, he warns them about two mountains. I'll do it as quickly as I can. Deuteronomy. You there? First of all, verse 6 of chapter 1, the Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb saying, you have dwelt long enough in this mountain. So the first mountain was the holy mountain of God's presence. And many people wanted to stay there forever when God said, no, you're not to stay here forever. Come here to be blessed. Come here to be refreshed. But you've got to go out and take possession of your inheritance. And there are certain things being raised up in our nation where people are just content to live in God's presence. They don't want to go anywhere. They want to get to heaven before they die. They're becoming more like nunneries and monkeries than they are the tabernacle of David. Hear what I'm saying? Now, Jesus would, would withdraw from the battle for two days to get refreshed with his Father's power and presence, only to be recharged to go back again into the battle. Now, that's the pattern of Jesus' life. Every time he needed a refreshment, two days 
in retreat back into the warfare. He didn't disappear on long sabbaticals. He didn't disengage. He just constantly was being refreshed by the power of his father's presence. Does that make sense to you? So now you've been at Mount Horeb long enough. Don't just stay here say, oh Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me. I want all the goosey, goosey bumps that I get when I'm in your presence. Oh, it's lovely, it's lovely, it's lovely. I don't want anything else, but just you, 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 you. Oh, 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 it's wonderful. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. He says, you've been here long enough, now get back into the fight. I called you out of Egypt to go to war to possess your inheritance. Now, you need to spend time in my presence to be empowered and to be refreshed in order to be equipped for war. But the purpose is to be equipped for war. Right, the second mountain, Deuteronomy chapter 2. This is Mount Sinai, Mount Seir, which is the place where, where Esau, where Amalek was. It's a picture of the flesh. I've not time to go into it, but he, he said, you've been going around this mountain long enough. Otherwise, you've been a Christian now for 25 years, you're still smoking. <laughs> you, you can't get up in the morning and have a quiet time because you're too darn lazy. You haven't got your body into fighting shape in order to be a true warrior of the Lord. I've waited long enough now, stop going around Mount Seir and deal with the flesh seriously. That I might, might make you an equipped, disciplined warrior of warfare. Does that make sense to you? All right, let's move on, because I'm going to do this quickly. Then, then he tells us something else which you need to read. Come back to chapter 1 and verse 2. It says this, It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In other words, what he's telling us is this, if he had been able to bring out of Egypt a company of people ready for war, mean fighters, ready to fight with all the adversaries on the way, he could have brought them from Egypt to the Promised Land in 11 days. That's what he could have done. But they didn't want war. When they, he said, I couldn't bring you by way of the Philistines because when you saw war, you would have run away. So he gave them an 18-month taste of the wilderness, hoping that would cure them of not wanting to stay for the rest of their lives in the wilderness. And then he brought them up again to Kadesh Barnea and said, right, now go in and possess them. And they said, well, let's send out some spies. The spies went into the promised land and said, it's fantastic. Oh, boy, is it a promised land. But there were two problems. The giants are very big and the cities are very fortified, so we can't go in and take it. And they would not go in because they were not prepared to fight. So they turned round again and said, no, let's go in. He said, no, no, you missed your opportunity now. Now, I, I'm saying this because I want you to see this is what's been happening in our nation. Come to chapter 2, verse 14. And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp just as the Lord had sworn to them. Verse 16, so it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, the day, this day you are to cross over. In other words, this generation that made war noises but weren't prepared to fight God left them to die in the wilderness now. And he waited for a new generation to come up that were ready to go to war. And so that new generation came up 
and they crossed over with Joshua as their leader. Moses also died without going into, into the promised land. And this generation, which they said would perish, became the warriors that advanced and began to take possession of their inheritance. There was 38 years that passed. Now here's the principle. That is that you will not take one square inch of your inheritance without fighting for it. The Christian life is a life of war. There isn't any other Christian life. Paul, at the end of his ministry, said, I have fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. As he handed over the baton to Timothy, he said, Timothy, here, here our son, here's the baton, now you fight the good fight of faith. There's no other Christianity except that you're at war all the time. Amen. You might withdraw for two days to get refreshment, but it's to go back into the fight again. And if you're not prepared to fight, then not only will you not get your inheritance, but the devil will steal from you what you already had. Amen? Amen? And so they died. Now there's a principle there. I could spend a lot of time on that, show you many more, many, many more examples. Now when you come to the New Testament, the, they had a mighty breakthrough in the city of Ephesus and established the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. That's when the miracles of healing and the signs and wonders and the cloths and handkerchiefs laid on, did on people where they were being healed. But a tremendous opposition came against them. The year when they came to Ephesus and started the church at Ephesus was the year AD 57. Okay? Then suddenly, the civil authorities turned around and began to attack the church. And the church went into safety mode and would not go spiritually to fight that. And so for the next many years, they had one opposition after another. All the other uh, apostles were killed, only John survived. He was taken to the Isle of Patmos and there he was for 14 years as God showed him what the problem was. He showed them that the people were not really ready for, for, for war. And that until God had got a warring people, he couldn't take the land. So then John is told by the Spirit of God in, in, in his 90s to write a new gospel, the Gospel of John, to write the letters of John and the book of Revelation, and the purpose was to get the next generation ready to be a warring people to take possession of the land. I haven't time to go into all the detail, but I can show you many scriptures on this. Have you got the picture here? So finally, he comes out of, out of solitary confinement in the year AD 95. Now, what's, what's, 50, what's 95 minus 57? What's 95 minus 57? 38. So 38 years, another generation. And, and, and I, I can't develop it as I would like to, but, but the whole purpose of these Gospels was to prepare a warring people because the previous generation backed off when they saw conflict. Now one of the great teachings in John's Gospel is John chapter 5 where you find a lame man lying at the gate called Beautiful. It's a pool, and he's surrounded by a lot of lame people lying around the pool, and if you look at it carefully, it's called the House of Mercy. It's got five pillars, the five-fold ministry, giving it a covering. It's a tremendous picture of the church, but there's one thing wrong. It ain't a river, it's a pool. And all the lame people are coming there every Sunday and lying there, saying, how are you doing, sister? Said, oh, I'm doing fine. How's your back? Oh, it's giving me trouble, but praise the Lord, one day he's going to heal me. How about you, brother? Says, oh, I've had a difficult week, but praise God, I managed to get here. And all around the pool, there's all these whole lame people full of their own misery and their own suffering, and they're waiting for the moving of the waters. 
and they can't do anything until God moves. And then Jesus comes to one man who's been lying there, how long? 38 years. And says to him, do you want to be made whole? See, there's lots of people who come into the church with, and they've got all kinds. And, and then he gives three excuses. I, I better say this quickly. There's no man. I've, I've gone to all the best meetings. All the best men have laid hands on me, but I'm still the same. Well, why don't you do something? And then I'm waiting for the water. When the water's stirred, someone else gets down before me. So he's making all his excuses. You see, there's lots of people who say, well, yeah, you see, you don't... And, and, and so Jesus then gives him three answers. Let me come to this, verse 8. He says, and actually, two of them are in what's called a present imperative, which means it's a military commandment, and the point of time is now. Now, if you read the English, it says, arise. It sounds so nice. But if you read the Greek, it says, get up! Now, see, this was the kind of church that over-pastors people. Oh, poor old sister so-and-so. Oh, dear, had a tough week. Oh, never mind, let's just love her. Poor old sister so-and-so. Give her a bottle of milk to go through another week of defeat. Now, no one had ever spoken to this man like that before. She said, get up! And the guy leaps to his feet, being on the bed, and, and then, then he sees his bed lying there. You see, the bed is all the excuses we lie on. You see, you see I, I, I mean, I had a very... My husband walked out on me. It wounded me so deeply that I'm going to be a, a, a spiritual invalid for the rest of my life, and the church is going to have to help me because I can't help myself. Or I had a terrible divorce. My husband walked out on me. Or I went to that church and it split, and I was so wounded by the pastor, I'm never, ever, ever going to get anywhere near that sort of thing again. So there's all these casualties lying there, saying, saying well, we can't do anything because we're waiting for the moving of the waters. Now, whatever background you've had, whatever things you've suffered, there's a power in the risen Christ not to stay that way. Whatever kind of mess you came into the kingdom in, you don't need to remain that way. You can become a glorious new creation in Christ with power and authority over the demonic. They shouldn't be walking over you. You should be walking over them. Get up! And run up that bed and stop making your excuses. And the third commandment was, in the present continuous tense, go on walking continually. Walk, I can see Jesus with a pitchfork saying, get up, ow, get up, keep, ow, ow, wow, wow, wow. I'm going to die well make you walk. When this guy's run around the pool a few times, he realizes he's healed. Hey, I can walk. But it's a picture of the church. You see, the church is supposed to be a mighty river of life bringing life wherever it goes. It's become an introverted pool going nowhere with a bunch of invalids who stay the same way year after year after year after year and no one gets up and starts to move in the power and the anointing of God. Got the picture? Well, as that gospel went around the churches of what was then Asia to Ephesus and all the other churches, they got the message. It's time to so know our Father and to be so empowered by our Father and to so walk with the Father and live with the Father just like Jesus did that the very works of Jesus we will do by, because of our relationship with the Father. We're not wimps lying around a pool. We're mighty warriors who are going to take the nations for God. So when John came out of prison at the end of Domitian's reign, 
he took his warrior army to the city of Ephesus, went into the temple of the, high, of the, of the great temple of Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, and that demonic spirit that ruled there was the spirit that ruled over the Roman Empire, ruled over the Greek Empire, ruled over the Egyptian Empire. It was the mightiest spirit. Could possibly be Satan himself. I'm not really sure about this. And he stood before that high altar with the authority and the power that had been given to him by this revelation. And he said, you devil, there's not room for us and you, and we ain't leaving, you're going. That spirit had never been spoken to like that before. And when John spoke those simple words, which are recorded not in the Bible, but they're recorded in the early writings of the, of the early church fathers, Eusebius records these words. He said that when he spoke to this, to this demon in the temple, a three simple three-word, three I mean, a three-line word of commandment, the, the high altar to Artemis or to Diana broke into a thousand pieces. And half the temple of Diana collapsed in ruins. Now up to that point, they'd had a living church in a demonized city. Ever since AD 57 to AD 95, 38 years, there'd been a living church that was surviving in difficult circumstances. But the cry of the city is, Oh, great is Diana, the god of the Ephesians. And the cry of America is great is our secular, godless humanism. And that foul demon's coming down in Jesus' mighty name. It's not going to be honoured or worshipped anywhere in any of our government institutions or in our society because we're going to raise up the true and living God and they're going to fall on their faces before him. Amen. Now that would be the cry. Living church in a demonized city, having to have permission from the demonized city to do whatever they wanted to do and being severely persecuted by them. And suddenly the thing changes because now this generation has become a warrior generation. Led by the old soldier, the old veteran John, they go into the temple, speaks one word of authority. That demon flees, the temple collapses, and the new cry is heard across the city of Ephesus. They, they get on their knees and cry out, Oh, God forgive us for our sin. Great is the God of John. That's what they then cried out. A different cry. Within 50 years, the worship of Diana had ceased over the whole Roman Empire. And every city in Europe was taken. And every city in Europe now honoured the name of Jesus. Every politician and everybody was very careful to give honour to Jesus because they knew, even if it was hypocritical, they knew that he was the power and he was the authority and they had to submit to him. Now that's coming to the United States of America. Amen? It was totally transformed. Now let me move on. So I said to the Lord, have you got the picture of that? There are other examples of 38 years in Scripture I've not time to go into tonight. You see, in every case, it's a period of 40 years where they're given two years to decide to become warriors, to fight the powers that are coming against them. And when they refuse, the 38 years are a punishment for them refusing to fight, and they die in the wilderness instead of possessing their possessions. Now, that's the principle here. So here we come to the year 2004. If you take 38 away from 2004, what number do we come to? I'll tell you, it's 1966. So I got to my, when I just saw this very recently, I got to my computer and began to search my computer 
and I began to look at what was happening in America at that time. And I want to just, I've just got a few things I could tell you, many, many more, but this is what was beginning to happen at that time. If I take the period 63 to 68, but particularly 1966, these things were happening. At that time, there were widespread riots and unrest over the Vietnam War. In 1965, at the end of that year, Lyndon Johnson declared full-scale war. In 1963, uh, Kennedy was assassinated. In 1966, the hippie movement breaks out, and they start a whole new music culture called rock and roll. The whole younger generation is captured by that music and starts to live in totally different concepts of society compared with their parents. Uh, 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 two great festivals began. One of them was the Merry Prankster Festival, which was a festival of music, drugs and sex. The peace protest began and the slogan, let's make love, not war, became the slogan. In all our university campuses and all over this nation, there was terrible unrest and rebellion against every kind of authority. Okay? There was also began the Burning Man Festival. You know what that festival is? It's a festival of tens and tens of thousands of young people that go to a place in Nevada and for several days they mock God, they mock the things of God, they go through everything. They say, okay, we're going to go to hell and burn, but we're, we don't care. And it's a, a blatant demonic rebellion against God. It's full of demons and, and sex and witchcraft and every kind of filthy thing. It's going on in the United States. In 1966, the Beatles declared, we are more popular than Jesus. In 1966, the Church of Satan was officially founded and given official recognition in the United States of America. Now today, we have chaplains in our armed forces who are recognized priests of Satanism and Wiccan priests, and they're allowed to minister to the men on the same footing as our Christian ministers. In Fort, Fort Hood in Texas, there are Wiccan and there are Satanist ministers who are paid by our taxes to minister their wickedness to our troops. That began in 1966. In 1966, Martin Luther King, who had just begun the non-violent, peaceful civil rights movement, he begins to run into trouble. And the tragedy was that although he stood and cried out for this to be an issue of righteousness, not an issue of race. There was not a single white church leader or a group of white people that would stand with him. He got about 50,000 uh, African Americans to, to, to take the, 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 the terrible things that were done to them, to boycott the buses, to walk to work. There wasn't, there wasn't a community of white people that said, we're going to stand with you and make this an issue of righteousness. I feel terribly ashamed of that. The Ku Klux Klan came out in great fury, and in 1966, Martin Luther King was stoned. Several of his, ad, uh, of his uh, assistants were injured, and one or two of them were killed. Not a thing was said by the practicing church of Jesus Christ about this, as far as the white people were concerned, particularly. They just said, you know, you shouldn't really do this. Just wait for God sovereignly to solve the problem, but let's not go to war. I'm talking about spiritual war, I'm not talking about physical, you know, violence, I'm not talking about that at all, I'm talking about getting into the heavenlies and, and doing something about it in the spirit realm and taking whatever action was appropriate to see that thing was done. Amen. In that year, 1966, the black power movement and the black 
Panther movement began as a reaction to the, to the wickedness of the white Ku Klux Klan and the apathy of the white church to stand with their black brothers and make this an issue of righteousness. And, and Martin Luther King Christ, see he's about the same age as me, we're four months different in age. I thought, supposing I was born in Birmingham, Alabama and got saved. In 1963, I went to India as a missionary. Just imagine, instead of that, I joined him. <laughs> got 50,000 white folk to march and go to jail. And, 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 and say, so it wasn't a race issue, it was a righteousness issue. Wouldn't it have made a different America today? I feel so ashamed, I really do. You understand what I'm saying? But nobody wanted to go to war. Nobody wanted to fight. They gave little, little pathetic, little, weak, yeah. Okay. In 1968, as you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated. In 1963, one of the most terrible things was the, the Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama was bombed and those little, wonderful little children were murdered. And those people were never brought to trial. Not until decades later. Or, or they knew perfectly well who did it. They had all the evidence to convict them, but no one would take action. As a result, the KK Ku Klux Klan became more and more violent, and violent race riots broke out all over the nation. In 1966, the National Organization for Women began, and they started to fight for women's rights. It was a legitimate cause, but it was done in the wrong way. It went into extreme feminism, and then before long, they weren't just demanding women's rights, they were demanding women's rights over their reproductive organs, and it led to the whole abortion movement. It all started in 1966. In 1966, the movement to separate church and state really got underway. In 1966, Margaret Higgins Sanger uh, began a powerful movement of Planned Parenthood. All these things happened in that period. Now, can you see every foundation of our society is being attacked here? In 1966, the movement began to liberalise divorce and they began to question the traditional Victorian values of, of marriage. In 1966, the gay rights movement began. In 1969, you have the terrible Stonewall riots in New York, which I'm sure many of you know about. It became violent and horrible. In 1965, I could go through lots more of this stuff, but in 1965, the charismatic movement began, which was God's answer to all this stuff. He said, all right, we're at war. All things are happening to the foundation of our nation. We need an anointed warrior church that's going to go to war and win the battles in the heavens and turn our nation back to righteousness. But instead of becoming a warrior movement, it became an introverted bless me club. And that which God sent to raise up a warrior generation of... Just imagine if we'd had hundreds of thousands of young people full of the Holy Ghost and of every nationality, of every ethnicity, I meant to say, and we just said, let's go together and let's save our nation and all these... What a different, different history we would have. But God said, all right, you don't want to go to war? You can die in the wilderness. Now, that's my generation that I'm talking about, and I'm ashamed of my generation. But just like there was a Joshua and a Caleb, there were a few. It wasn't a matter of age, it was a matter of spirit. Because they had the right spirit, 
God allowed them to come and be part of this warrior army that was going to take the possession of their inheritance. And so God's been saying in the year 2004, I'm going to do something new. We had various little slogans that have been introduced, but I want to introduce one. Let's go to war in 2004. It's a new generation, and we're going to go back now. I mean, it started a few years ago with Alan Parker and a few other people beginning to battle in the heavenlies for the right to reverse some of these various laws that have been passed. I should have mentioned, by the way, in 1963, one atheist woman objected to her atheistic son being made to listen to scripture in school. And all Bible reading and prayer was banned because one atheistic woman went to court and successfully completed her case in the year 1966. There wasn't one Christian that ever got up and opposed that in the laws. They just let it happen. There was no action by any Christian group, no action by any Christian lawyer. No one raised a proper defense to stop that thing happening. Several um, court judges tried to do their best, but they were overwhelmed by the total apathy and powerlessness of the Christian community to want to do anything about it. And if you trace that event, teenage sex, drug addiction, all these terrible things, and you plot them against the loss of prayer, they, they exactly parallel one another. Now we've got a, a generation that doesn't even know of anything about God. But we're going to take this back into the schools. Amen? Amen? Now, David's tabernacle is basically a tabernacle from which a, it's like a war room where God gives inspiration and power and direction of how to wage an effective war to destroy all the enemies that are raising themselves up against the kingdom of God. And that's one great reason why it's being raised up. It's not being raised up primarily as a blessed me club. It's for yet on earth they seek the face of God and like David get a strategy so that all the Philistines and every other enemy of God may be destroyed. It's spiritual and it's not physical. There will be a place for political action. There will be a place for judicial action. But primarily it's going to be fought and won in the heavenlies by people who've learned how to pray and are prepared to give themselves to prayer. Amen. Now I'm totally committed to be part of this company. I'm a Joshua or a Caleb, I'm not quite sure which. I'm 74 on the outside, but I'm 25 on the inside. But my attitude is as a young person. And I want to invite you to say, yes, Lord, this is the word of the Lord. And we're going to become these warrior people in Jesus' name. Amen? Now, that's what I was going to say. Have I said it? You've got the sense of it? You understand why it's important to me? Right now we're going to do something as we close. One of the things that God has done and that he, he's going to increasingly do, he's going to confirm his word and, and, and lose the power of his spirit by signs and wonders and miracles taking place. And one of the things that I have started to do because God told me to do it is to pray over cloths and handkerchiefs and I could keep you here for the rest of the night telling you the miracles that I've seen happen. People dying of cancer, people with kidney failure, people with um, Alzheimer's disease, people with Parkinson's disease in the last stages, and, and they people with cancers all over their body, and these, they're, they're believers, they're non-believers, it doesn't make any difference. 
When these casts are taken, and in most cases, it seems to work best when they wear it for, for three days. Don't ask me why, but that's what seems to happen. And I could tell you story after story after story where people are getting powerfully healed and then powerfully converted because of the power that's going in this way. So as I close tonight, I've promised and I will, we'll pray over as many cloths and handkerchiefs as you can produce. And you take them and tell them that, it, that it's the power of Jesus' name by which they're going to be healed. And then when you see the power let loose, you decide that you yourself, you're going to become a channel of that power. Amen? Yes, Amen? Yes, There's no reason why I've got to do it all. You can do it just as well as I can. This is the day of his body. It's not the day of star ministries. Amen. And tremendous things are beginning to happen. So why don't we stand? You've had a lot of word. So much word. And I know you're weary. I'm weary too. But I don't want to go without doing this. Now, how many people have got cloths and handkerchiefs? Well, this is what I want to do. I, what I want, I'm going to find that this open space here will be just fine. And I want somewhere around about, say, 10 or 12 people, because that's about as many as you can get around me. You come around me, and then we're going to pray over these cloths and handkerchiefs. I'm going to anoint my hands with oil, because that's what God told me to do. Just come and gather around me until there's no more room. Put, 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 them, put the cloth on there. Put your hand on there. Put your hand there as well. Okay, put your hand there as well. Put that underneath, because that's rather big. Put them underneath on that hand. All right. Okay, there's, there's room for one or two more at the back here. I'll do this as many times as I need until everybody's got what they want. Just come behind. All right, put it on there, my love. That's fine. All right. Now, okay. Okay, right, that's enough. Let's wait for the next group now. Let's okay. I want your hands to be on there as well. Okay. All right, you, you, with, you with me? Right, I'm going to pray. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And I want to thank you for the power, that glorious power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to thank you for that power in a way that we don't understand or, or need to understand. It's going into these cloths and handkerchiefs. And when it's laid on these sick people, that power is going to go from the cloth and from these hands into those sick people. Yes, Lord. Demons are going to flee. Yes, Lord. Cancer is going to shrivel up and die. Yes, Spirits Lord. of cancer and of Alzheimer's disease and, and Parkinson's disease and all kinds of other illnesses, Lord, yes, Lord. they're going to flee and wonderful glorious healing is going to flow into their body. It's going to be because of the name of Jesus and because of what he accomplished at the cross. We thank you, Lord, that by his stripes we have already been healed. Now let that power flow into these cloths and handkerchiefs. And when they're laid on these sick people, let miracles take place to glorify your name. Now let that power come right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, you take them. Okay, you got them? Everybody got them? Is that yours? You got it? Okay. I'll just get some more oil and I'll do the next one. Let me just keep, where's the oil? There it is. Just pour it on my, not too, not, that's too much, brother. Oh dear. Yeah, that's going to go on there. Just, okay, that's fine. Oh okay, Put him on. 
Is, is that supposed to be getting anointed, or is it? Okay, put it on there. Put it. Put your hands on as well. Put that. Is, you want this to be part of it? Okay, put it there. Then that's fine. No, just leave it so there's room for other people's clothes. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. All right. I'm going to put one hand on top. Let me put one hand on top. One hand underneath. You got your hand there. Put your cloth right in there. You put your hand on. I want your hand on. Come right in, because your hand's going to be part of the equation. So I want your hands to be anointed as well. Put your hands in there. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, come on, let's have your hand right on there, right in there. In the mighty name of Jesus, I want to thank you once again for the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. In a way that we don't understand or need to understand, it's flowing into these cloths and handkerchiefs. And that mighty power is going into them. And when they're laid upon all these sick people, that power is going to go into their bodies. And the demons of sickness are going to flee. Spirits of cancer and many other spirits are going to flee out of their bodies. Tumors are going to shrivel up and die. Cancers are going to disappear. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, all kinds of great things are going to happen in their bodies to glorify the name of Jesus. Now let this power flow now, now, now. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You take it. You take them. Amen. You got it? A little more oil. Not too much this time. That's fine. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Put them on there. Okay. Put them on. Let's just keep them folded. All right. That's fine. That's fine. Put them on there. I'll put my hand on top. Okay. Anoint them with oil in the name of Jesus. Put your hands on. Anybody else? Come in quickly if you want to be part of this. Put your hand in there. Put it in. That's right. Put it in. And you put that one in. Put your hand on there. Keep your hand there. I want your hand in as well. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, once again, we thank you for the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you for the way it's flowing into these cloths and handkerchiefs in a way that we don't understand or need to understand. We think when it's laid upon these sick people, mighty power is going to go into their body. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead. And those demons are going to flee. Spirits of cancer particularly, and of every other kind of disease. They're going to flee from their bodies. And mighty healings are going to take place. Tumors are going to shrivel up and die. Cancerous cells are going to disappear. Faulty kidneys are going to function normally again. Every kind of glorious miracle is going to take place to magnify your name. Now let that power flow now, right now, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You take them. Got him? Is that everybody? Yeah, you have it. That's fine. Okay. Okay. Okay, let's, this is the last one then. Thanks, that's fine. Woo! It's okay. Is it? Don't worry. We'll, we'll get, put it on. Come right round me. Come right round me. Come in close. Put your hand, at least one hand on top, okay? Put it in there. Okay, put your hand on top. Everybody there? Father, I want to thank you once again for the unlimited mighty power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If we did this 3,000 times, there still would be enough power to heal everybody who's sick. We want to thank you for that power that you released to raise Jesus Christ from the dead when every sickness and every disease of the whole of Adam's race was laid upon him. 
We thank you that by those painful, cruel stripes, we were healed. Now I want to thank you for that power flowing into these cloths, into these handkerchiefs, and into these hands in a way that we don't understand or need to understand. But we thank you that when they're laid upon these sick people, that power is going to go into their bodies. Demons are going to flee. Spirits of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, every kind of terrible sickness that afflict men and women that have come from the pit of hell, they're going to flee out of their bodies. And marvelous, wonderful healings are going to take place. And we give you all the glory. And we give you all the thanks. It's entirely you, entirely your doing. And we just praise your name. Now, Lord, let that power come right now. Right now. Right now. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, you take them. Father, once again, we thank you for the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Let that power flow into these cloths and handkerchiefs when they're laid on these sick people. I want to thank you that power is going to go into their bodies. Demons are going to flee. Amen. Did you get the words for that? Okay. All right, let's quickly sing it then. Okay. Oh, great. We can't put them up on the screen. Yeah, I have them. Okay, great. Oh, great. That's wonderful. Let's sing it. You'll see why I want to sing it. Can you sing it? Do you know, do you know the whole song? Because I still can't get that thing right. Let me try and sing this last verse without the music, because it will, okay? Oh, holy fragrance, sweet perfume, all-consuming fire. for today. That's how it ought to go. Is that all right? All right, let's try it now. Sick people, let that mighty power go into these cloths and handkerchiefs. And, and when it's laid upon these sick people, let that power go into their bodies. Let these demons flee. Spirits of cancer, every kind of wicked spirit that's doing this wicked work in their body, let them flee in the name of Jesus. Let your mighty power just cast them out. Let every cancerous cell shrivel up and die. Every tumor just just shrivel up and vanish. And let glorious healing, power, powerful healing, pour into their lives. And give them, Lord, life again. They may live. 
by the power of your resurrection life to the glory of Jesus. Let that power come right now, right now, right now. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.